You know, it's really important that we study the Word of God and we learn about Christ. Charles Spurgeon made an incredible um, quote, and he said, basically, I'm paraphrasing this, he said it more eloquently than I can remember, but he said, if, if Christ is not everything to us, then He's nothing to us. And so studying the Word of God and studying the Bible just shows where, where He is in our heart. And, you know, I heard a pastor say one time that the most, the, some of the most faithful Christians are the ones that don't just go to the worship service, but they go to the Sunday school class and the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And so it's a real blessing to be here. And as we, as we go forward, we're going to see a couple of real interesting, I think some very interesting applications this morning. So in Acts chapter 17, we pick up here with verse 28 um, in chapter 17 of Acts, as Paul continues on, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And we're going to stop there this week, because that's plenty to go over. But then we see that at the end, we start getting the reaction of the audience and what actually happened here. And then Paul leaves Greece, or the Areopagus here in Athens, and he works his way to Corinth. Which that becomes, I mean, as he's moving and he's going through this journey, it just becomes more adventurous and more interesting as you go along. But, you know, I just like to write as a little opening here that we all must remember that Christ, that in Christ Jesus and of Christ Jesus we live. We must live in Him since we exist by Him. We must exist for Him. All the comforts we enjoy in bounty and all the supports we receive are from our Savior, and therefore we must always strive to be, a, to be a better being as Paul did going up against this philosophical realm. His whole defense moved him to the front of the offensive line, and Paul won this debate by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must hide these words in our heart to gain a better understanding and appreciation for these marvelous adventures of St. Paul the Apostle. And he won this. I mean, he dusted off the area that they were standing because he carried the truth with him. And it's amazing how the truth always rises to the top. But the problem is today we have a real problem with truth. There are many that believe truth is relative, that there are more than one truths, but that's not true. There's only one truth. And so we saw, as in review, we had seen last time we were here, the word happily appeared if haply they might feel after him and find him, denoted that a picture, a picture that Paul gives regarding the distorted view of God filled with man's interpretive pictures that they paint of their God and not the God. They did this happily. They did this very, you could say, very uh, dangerously and, and very, they postured being good religious people. And basically, here Paul makes it very, very uh, plain all throughout these writings to be very, very careful to not fall into idol worship because the Lord does not put up with it. In 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul wrote, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, 
because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And I just believe, really, I, I, I believe in my heart, I know, I think, that if we stick by this, and if we stick by these words of Paul, then we're not going to be drawn away. We're not going to be drawn away from what the truth really is. Now, as a young man now, a new fellow working over at the bank where I go to, and he's just a precious young man. He and his wife came over from Serbia. So I walk into the bank, and all of a sudden, one of the ladies there, he's a Christian friend of mine, said that this, this young man, he was talking to her about religion. There was hardly anybody there, and I walked right up, and she was saying, have you ever heard of a church that at the church they have no instruments, they just basically sing a cappella, they sing praises to the Lord, and, they, and they're very reverent in their worship. And he was talking about that. Well, it turns out to be he's an old Orthodox Episcopal from Serbia, and he and I got into a conversation, and I walk up to the tellers, and she, uh, Carol was standing, and she was ta- talking about how they were talking about religion. And one of the first things he says is, I don't, he goes, one thing we learn in our church, that no matter what religion you're in, you're in, everybody believes in God, and it's okay to God as long as you believe in Him. That's what he said. That's, the, that's really, I guess you could call it a more progressive truth these days, but that has been true down through the ages. Everything goes. Everything is okay as long as you believe in a God. But we as Christians believe in the God. And we're going to see something here this morning that I think will really increase our faith. And I told him, I said, you better be very careful with that. If Jesus Christ is not the center of your worship, it's a cult. He goes, I never heard that before. And I said, anything out of Christ, it's a cult. It's not a religion. And if he's not the center then why are, we, why are we worship? And he looked at me, he goes, you're right, if Christ is not the center, why are we worshiping? He agreed. He 100% agreed. But I think it's important that we clarify that when people bring these things because they have all these things rolling around in our heads, but when we stab them in the heart with the sword of the truth and give them that, it gives them a standard. And, you know, it's just such a, it's a all it is, basically, as Christians, it's a reasonable service. You know, you can easily stand and get into a situation like that, go in and then leave and forget about it. But I think we have an obligation there. Lisey. Right. And that was important, so important. Look at the example of what he did. You know, every opportunity we have to keep talking about Jesus to recenter these people because he said, you know, I don't know where he is. I shared the full gospel with him a, a couple of weeks later before I went home. But I thought, this is a man that hadn't heard it for years mm. because he'd been so ill. 
right, and right. Right. Sinisa. Yeah. And right now, today, I now I've never heard of this, but right now, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and tomorrow, he actually took off work because this is their Easter, and they have this this ritual that they go through for days. I mean, they're really serious about what they believe. But there's this, there's this thing where they paint an Easter egg a certain color and they keep it in their house for a year. And it's supposed to remind them of the strength of, of what the meaning of Easter. And there was this whole line of things. And actually, it's, it's amazing because this was two weeks ago that I spoke to him. But this past Friday, I spoke to the two ladies that were at the bank and they were telling me some of the things that they're going through. And they were like just talking about it and like wondering what I had to say about it. And all I said was very simple. That's all works-oriented. All of that's works-oriented. And the one lady, Carmen, she was like, yeah, you're right about that. And I said, so the focus is on Christ. This is what Paul is saying here. He's doing the very same thing. He's trying to tear apart all of this false idol worship and this anti-Jehovah-centered religion where everything else was a god but God himself. And so the question that Paul brings up, he says we're not supposed to worship the Lord as a gold or silver and wood and false idols. Why would we want to have a substitute for the authentic, perfect existence and being of God? Why would we want that? And he's trying to make this very plain here and build a case towards that. God is not far from us, Paul said, and we must feel and think after him and find him because the express purpose of creating us with communication, senses, intelligence, and conscience, is to serve Him. We do not decide to follow Jesus on our own. We find Him, He pulls us in, and He calls us to Him. He is not far from us. And because He has placed Himself directly before us, He is not far. Could I ask Charlie, could you look up Romans chapter 1, verse 20? And Jacob, could you look 1 Corinthians um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. And then maybe, Brother Jim, could you look up 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Got three good verses to read there. Romans 1.20, if Charlie could find that, and then 1 Corinthians 8.6, Jacob, and then 1 John 4.8. But we see our express purpose for being here on earth is that God has revealed Himself unto us as the Creator, the Ruler, and He controls the world. God has revealed Himself to us in conscience. It is in our hearts to know the law of God. It's been put there. It's, it's like a computer chip, in a sense. And it's there in our hearts. If you have that, Charlie, go ahead. They are without excuse. Look at that. Thank you, Charlie. They're clearly seen. Well, what does that mean? They're very clear. They're not, they're not hard to understand. They're clearly seen where we can look out our windows every morning and say, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's where everything came from. We see the, all the flowers and all the leaves coming out on the trees now. And we know that came from God. The grass gets green this time of year. The, the seasons change. We, our bodies heal. All these things, we know they're clearly seen. They all come from God. Isn't that incredible? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Jacob. 
Everything is of him. Thank you, Jacob. Everything is, is by him. By whom are all things, and we by him. He is our God. He is our Father, of whom are all things. Of him, through him, and to him. Are all things we read in Romans eleven thirty six. First John 4, 8. Jim, if you have that. Oh, well, if we don't, we say that we don't know him, then we don't love him. And if we don't love him, he's not the center of our lives. And that's very, very awful. Well, you know, when we're in our lives here, Paul says in verse 28, in him we live and we have our being. And then he goes to something we started talking about the last class. We're going to go over it again real quick. But, you know, it's a very simple verse that we can live by, that we can apply to our Christian lives. And it's very simple. Whether therefore ye eat or drink and whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Everything. And there's joy in that. There's wonderful joy. We see that in Paul being chained into a prison in the book of Philippians. He says in the very first chapter, I come to you with joy in my heart. How can he come to us with joy in his heart when he's being chained in a horrible prison? Because he has Christ in his heart. There is no one and not even a heathen that will be able to say they did not know the Lord and to be able to get away with profaning his name. Ezekiel 36.23 says, And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. And we've been discussing in the Wednesday night prayer meeting what sanctification means. Sanctification is the Lord refining us. It's the process we go by here on this earth where our works follow salvation, and we are working for the Lord. Now, the Lord has changed our heart. We now have been regenerated, and there's a desire in our heart to get away from those old things that made us miserable, all these things that we thought were pleasures and they were horrible sins, and then we, we go towards the cross, we go towards Christ, and we go towards serving Him. And you know, we, we all have our different capacities that we serve Him and our different gifts, but that is a process of our sanctification where the Lord directs us. So, I have a little story here. <laughs> it's kind of like a, almost like a little, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a joke, but it's kind of like a little riddle, little story here. And it's about trusting in the Lord. And looking around us, and the clarity of what Jacob read, and how it's very under, easy to understand, to clarify that all things are of the Lord. Let me read this to you. One day it began to rain very heavily. It kept raining and a big flood came. A man climbed up on the roof of, his, a roof of his house and knew that he would be okay. God would protect him. It kept raining and now the water had reached his waist. A boat came by and a guy in the boat said, Hey, jump in. We will take you with us. He said, No thanks, said the man. I am a firm believer in God. He will rescue me. He sent the boat away. It kept on raining and now the water had reached his neck. Another boat came by and a guy in the boat said, You look like you could use some help. Jump in and we will take you with us and save you. No, said the man, I am a firm believer in God. He will rescue me. Don't worry about me. The boat sailed away. It still rained and the water now reached his mouth. A helicopter came by and a guy in the helicopter threw down a rope and said, Hi there, my friend. Climb up 
We will rescue you. No, said the man. I'm a firm believer in God. He will rescue me. I know he will. The helicopter flew away. It kept on raining, and finally the man drowned. He died. When the man died, he went to heaven. When entering heaven, he had an interview with God. After giving a polite greeting and sitting down, the man asked, Where were you? I waited and waited. I was sure you would rescue me. As I have been a firm believer all my life and have only done good to others, so where were you when I needed you? God boldly looked on with great authority and answered, I don't get it either. I sent you two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> See that? Sometimes it's easy to miss these things that the Lord sends our way and he gives, gives us as, you know, as tools to help ourselves out, that the Lord is everywhere. And I think that's a very good story to bring together that you know, we need to trust in the Lord and the things that he sends us and be thankful for them. Pastor. Right. And he uses the That's that's a that's the best way to put it. Bring it together, and look at what Christ said. The Pharisees remember when the Pharisees came to him and said, "Can you show us signs and wonders?" What had he not shown them up to that point? He had healed, he had preached, he had told them in John eighteen, "I told you my doctrine." Ask them, ask those that I ask those who I told them what they said, what I said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. He said. He had the means, and he showed them, and people don't pay attention. And they want a miracle. That's why you see on television all the time, or you hear on the radio, all oh, these apparitions of Mary. There's a picture of Mary on the side of a building. Or there's this big wailing wall. Or there's this statue that has tears coming out of it. Or this great big statue down at Johns Hopkins with Jesus that people put cards down at the feet. We talked about that before. But people are always looking for something that makes them look like they've touched something that no one else can touch. But God is everywhere, and Paul's telling them this. It's not, he's not, he is not in those false idols that they're all basically encased around with at the Areopagus, at the Parthenon. He's not in any of those false idols. And we also talked about how he's not in these temples confined to these houses of worship that Christ called whited sepulchres filled with men's bones. He's not confined to them. He's not even in most of them. I mean, the, where the ones where the Lord is present are the ones that worship His Son, Jesus Christ, and that honor and worship Him obediently. We read, for in Him we live and for in Him we live and move and have our being. There were quote, there's a quote from a philosopher, and there are quotes from the philosophers in these scriptures. And this is quite rare. Paul uses a quotation from the sixth century BC, the Cretan poet. Epimenides of Knossos to help illustrate his teaching to the highly sophisticated philosophers at the Areopagus. This very first phrase in verse 28 is an actual quote from a Greek philosopher. Another quote about God from a Greek philosopher is, To God everything is beautiful, good, and just. Humans, however, think some things are unjust and others just. This is Heraclitus. Socrates, he believes in God to be perfectly good and perfectly wise, his God is rationally moral. 
And thus, for Socrates, piety is to be like God. And my point is, we were talking about this before, the Greek philosophers knew that there was a God. Some of them actually were trying to articulate the true God that's worshipped. They couldn't understand who he was. They had no idea. There's another philosopher that I was saying, there are two quotes here. We just, the first one is, For in him we live and move and have our being by Epimenides. And then there's another one, For we are also his offspring. And that was also a quote. It's quite important to see where Paul was going with the statement. He said, As also of your own poets have said, Paul has given the gospel. He's not finished. He speaks of the creation and the saving grace of Christ, but he also turns the tables on the Epicureans and the Stoics. He makes an incredible deduction by turning the tables on the fact that some of the philosophers actually had an opinion of God. And they were quite good ones. Paul finishes the verse with another quote, and he says from the, another philosopher, for we are also his offspring. This was a quote from the Greek philosopher Aratus that came from Paul's home region of Cilicia near Tarsus. He knew about this philosopher. This was a quote that's actually here in Scripture. And Paul here is trying to convey that here by quoting these philosopher, philosophers, he's seeing that God is not confined to temples. He is not in a sarcophagus like the Egyptians believe that the souls of man are to be held until a time of awakening. He is not made of gold. He is not made of silver. And even your own people quoted and talked about a God. That's what he's saying here. Here we see that the offspring of God, and we're going to look at that here in a minute, it's a fool's error to think that God could be nothing more than a man-made idol. And such reasoning in Isaiah chapter 44 points out the absurdity of idolatry. And I think I want to read these verses and I want you to really consider this because I was reading several quotes. And they, these are quotes from very, uh, just very, very worldly and very uh, secular people. And there are many to talk about how people, over and over again, this quote came up, people are, by nature, idle factories. That's what our nature is. Isaiah 44, 9. And we're going to read a few verses here. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity. And their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a God or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Verse 11. Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Ye, yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. Verse 12. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals, and fashioneth it with his hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with a compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house." He hewed down cedars and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Doth, doth nourish it. it. In verse 15, Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. 
he maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire, and part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. They have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire, yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it, and shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. What does Dr. Luke mean by the offspring of God? We are the spirits of God. He is the Father of our spirits, our souls. Have we have seen our, have we have seen what we are and we are created by God? Our Lord is the Father of our spirits. We are His offspring. We are His children. We believe in Christ. We are His children. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful title to have? Job 5.25, we read, Thou shalt know also thy seed shall be great, and thine offspring as the grass of the earth. Isaiah 44.3, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessings upon thine offspring. The word offspring actually means it's defined as a descendant or the result of something. We are the result of a wonderful God. And here we read this right in this, in this verse, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, in verse 29. And we see how Paul continues to preach as an extension from verse 24, where he made it clear that God cannot be confined in temples made of man's hands. He now says of a truth, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like under gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's devices. And we know this goes all the way back to Leviticus chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. Could someone look up Leviticus 26, 1 and 2 and read that in a moment, please? But we see here how Paul is saying, if we are the offsprings of God, we need to worship God. We need to worship the authentic, the true and living Jehovah Elohim, the great creator and judge of all the earth, and not worship false idols. Who has Leviticus 26, 1 and 2? Amen. Thank you, Teresa. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. No idols made of man's hands. If we are the offspring of God, we take no substitutes to be our object of worship. If we do so, we wrong God and put an affront, a slur, an insult upon Him. And Paul, is, Paul is, is, is over and over, he's saying this. What Paul brings to the table in this verse is the very essence of error that all religions fall by their own weight who do not fear God. 
Why don't people fear God? They don't even know who He is. How, do we, how can we know God if we don't study and if we don't understand His attributes? I love question number seven in the Confession of Larger Catechism. What is God? Here's the answer. You want to know who God is? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's interesting. Um, it says, I, I wrote something else here. It says, What are idols in our lives? Because I, um, there are examples of idols, but um, it says, Idols are anything that you give your life to, that you pour every ounce of your energy into, in hopes of it bringing you the things you desire in return. Mm. Right. It's a lot harder for us in our hearts because we're inherently wicked. Right. That, that we can pull the idols that really we're worshiping in our own lives. Right. That's the harder aspect of it. I mean, it's obvious when you're bowing down worshiping and taking the feet of statues. Right. Right. Well, the subtlety of it is what's so damaging, Lisey. Right. That's right. Yeah. Right? Well, we can get very, that's very excellent points. We can get very consumed by ourselves. And when we're so consumed by ourselves that we cannot be bringing others to the Lord, we can't be a testimony, that in and of itself is a very serious idol. Well, getting back to the question, what Lisa is saying is, is, is very, very um, profound because we don't just find ourselves going into maybe pagan temples. And the only time we worship idols, I mean, if, out, if we're not Christians, we're outside of that, like going into maybe like a Catholic church or something, and they have idols of all these statues of Mary and all these different statues and all, going into these churches and sitting there and getting down on our knees and bowing down, having the Koran. It's not just like that. People worship all these idols. It's the little things in our lives, the little idols. Things that take us away from worshiping the Lord, that keep us out of God's house, things that we would prefer to do. Pastor. Right. That's right. And it doesn't take long to see it, does it? 
you pull out on Sunday morning and I'm coming down Hyde's Road, there's a whole band of, well, it wasn't actually today, but it's usually pretty much every other Sunday, but I'll run into it eventually, probably on the way home. A whole band of like 30 bikers. And they're biking and they got, you know, they're real thin and they're all fit. And what they don't understand, if they don't love the Lord, all that means nothing. Then you go down to the great big recreational facility and they have these great big soccer and lacrosse tournaments. All the little children are supposed to be in Sunday school. They're being taught to go out there and kick a ball around. And that's, and that's their God. So, you know, I, I just, you know, I see what Paul's saying here basically is when we take away from the worship of the Lord and we have to be reminded, all of us do, because it's very easy to, to get caught up in our own in all of our own things. But what Paul is saying very eloquently here, what you're doing here in this Parthenon, you Greeks, you Athenians, you Gentiles, the Lord told you in the Old Testament He was going to bring the gospel to you. And in just a minute, I'm hoping we can get to this, I'm going to try to real quick, what does it mean that He told them that God winked at their ignorance? That's something that I think is very important. It brings this together. I never thought how important that statement was until I really started looking at it a lot harder for a while. But what is God? How do we know that we are worshiping the true and living God? Because the word God is very generic now. It can mean a lot of different things. That three-letter word. What is He? And well, the question number seven in the confession is, what is God? God is a spirit, and in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. That is just scratches the surface on that wonderful God that we worship. And the words we need to wrap our minds around is where we see here that, that apply to what we're about to talk about is merciful, gracious, and long-suffering. And Paul leads into this. God cannot be likened unto any graven image. And Paul is standing at the epicenter of idolatry with statues everywhere. There are buildings dedicated to mythological gods that do not exist. These gods, they're there only in dead design and architecture, but they have no spirit in them whatsoever. They have absolutely no arms and legs that can save, like the Word of God. They can't do anything. They're dead. It's the Word of God that does it. Man dishonors God if he makes him after the likeness of his body or creates any other image to worship in the place of true obedient worship. You know, you think of some of the most beautiful diamonds and jewelry and some of the most beautiful, authentic... Um, pieces of uh, some, any, any, any type of item. And I think that really can give us a good idea how we really should feel about God. There's a, there's a baseball card. There's only one in the world of Honus Wagner. That baseball card right now is probably worth close to $2 million. And there have been all kinds of phonies out there trying to reproduce it and go out and sell it. And these poor, poor people go out and think they get the real card. But whoever has that card, I know who used to have it, Wayne Gretzky from the uh, Edmonton Oilers, he had that card, he had the real one, and it's worth millions. Wouldn't you want that card? Or would you rather have the substitute? What about all the reproductions of the Hope Diamond? Would you rather have the real one? Or would you rather have the knockoffs? How about ladies when you get married? 
and you get a diamond ring. What would you do if you found out your husband bought you a cubic zirconium and it wasn't a real diamond? How would you feel? And my point is, is the authenticity of some of the treasures here on this earth. We want the real thing. Now, I don't agree with that bumper sticker back there in the 70s. It, had, it was red and it looked like a Coke sticker. It said, Jesus Christ is a real thing. But it's true. <laughs> he, he, is, he is the real thing. There is no substitute for Christ. So why would we want a fake God? Why would we want to worship something else? Martin Luther says, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. Boy, what a statement. Brilliant. Charles Spurgeon. He pronounces the personal subtle gods. This goes back to what Lisa was talking about. And Lisi, that take us away from Christ. He says, and consider this quote, To rejoice in temporal comforts is dangerous. To rejoice in self is foolish. To rejoice in sin is fatal. But to rejoice in God is heavenly. Isn't that wonderful? That should be a bumper sticker. John Calvin writes this about idol worship with Paul. and This is a direct quote to exactly what Paul was writing about. Calvin said, The Gentiles used images that according to their rudeness they might better conceive that God was nigh unto them. But seeing that God doth far surpass the capacity of our mind, whosoever attempteth with his mind to comprehend him, he deformeth and disfigureth his glory with a wicked and false imagination. Wherefore it is wickedness to imagine anything of him according to our own sense. Again, that which worse is, it appeareth plainly that men erect pictures and images to God for no other cause save only because they conceive some carnal thing of him wherein he is blasphemed. So if there's a reproduction of God and people are worshiping, they're blaspheming the Lord. They're breaking the third commandment. So we go forward in verse 30. God, let me say this real quick. God winked at the ignorance of mankind. So what does that mean? Go ahead, Lisa. Right. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the Lord's not taking it quite that far, but it, it seems to me when it says graven by art, that's not saying certain art. It's saying by art. Right. Well, I've seen tattoos of Jesus with Jesus looking up with a crown of thorns. See these, these stickers on the back of these guys' trucks because, and Jesus is on a cross. I think we have to be careful with that. These reproductions are very dangerous. And, and we don't know what Jesus looked like. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there are some things in Jesus I know uh, with the emperor. Yeah. I mean, we don't really depict Christ in that movie. I don't think so. I don't know that. But some of the other ones, you know, maybe it would have been better if they don't try to depict Christ. I mean, we talk about his life and everything. Right. Not depict him and that kind of thing. 
right? Right. Well, I remember in the, then what was in the 70s, that movie came out, Jesus of Nazareth. And I saw that as a kid. And I'll tell you, for the longest time, when I saw that movie, I remember seeing the whole movie. My parents watched it. I remember watching it. That's who I thought Jesus looked like. That's who I thought he was. That got into my head. I thought that he was this European, handsome guy with dark olive skin, long flowing hair, blue eyes, just like you see on the pictures. And those pictures can't be any further from the truth because he was not at all European. He was not at all, he did not have, he did not have the features of some you know, big movie star. It says, we, we, we know what we've read in Scripture about his appearance. Well, God winked at the ignorance of mankind. What does that tell us? God blinks at sin? Or does it mean he gives patience that we do not deserve? Amen. Right. Right. But that's what it's been turned into. That's a great point. Isn't that what it's been turned into? He winks at sin. He looks away from it. You know what it's turned into? That statement has whirled into all these other statements where God, how could we ever worship a God that would ever send us to a devil's hell? That's what it's turned into. Because people don't believe in hell anymore. They don't even talk about it anymore. Lisa. Right. 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 Well, for the last several years, you've seen television shows where somebody notices that somebody is different. Turns out they're gay, and how many times that it comes back? And says, they're gay, but, there's, but, but it's not that I have anything against gays or that there's anything wrong with that. Have you seen that? You'll see, you see the little caption or whatever. That's not that there's anything wrong with that. That's where our country has become very insensitive to one of the, one of the many, many very horrible, de- de- detestable sins that will send a man to hell or a woman to hell if they don't repent of that. It's very serious. Well, Lord, what, uh, we'll have to go into this next week because we're just about out of time. But, I, but we have to understand when it says that God, because the ignorance, well, let me read this to you because I, I don't want to just quote, I mean, talk. God winked at the ignorance, I mean, without verses. God winked at the ignorance of mankind. What does this tell us? 
Is he a God that, that turns away or just does not care about sin? Or is he a patient God and gives us patience that we never deserved? If Adam and Eve were allowed to continue to live after what they did and have children, have fellowship, and have a family, he winked to the point where he gave them time to repent. He gave them time to have families and to have an offspring when he could have stopped mankind right then and there. Would it have been just for God to have taken Adam and Eve and cast them right into hell for what they did? Yes, it would have been. They sinned against him and he had given them everything. He sinned. Adam sinned and Eve sinned. He and and his wife, they sinned. And God was just to do that. And for him not to do that, well, Paul steps this up a notch. We serve a very patient God. Paul confirms that God is patient when he does not have to be. Romans 15, 5, Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded, one toward another, according to Jesus Christ. And that's one application. Another application is this, this does not define as our Lord as being lax towards sin, but that this too was an act of divine justice. God despised the time of pagan idol worship by the Gentiles. He despised the time of their ignorance. It was provoking to see His glory given to another idol as an act of forbearance. He did send prophets. He sent disciples and sent apostles. He sent His Son and He patiently, He patiently, time after time after time, he gives us chances. Why is the verse in Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found? He has absolutely no obligation to give us one second to repent. But He does. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 18.15, Moses wrote, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. That was one of their chances. He's telling them about Christ. God was patient with the Gentiles and He held back His wrath on the Gentiles but promised them the gospel would come. Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. He promised that He would bring the Gentiles to the gospel. He promised that He would do that. He did not, and here's another thing, I'll stop there. He did not punish the Gentiles like he did the Israelites. He didn't. They didn't have the pestilences and the famines like the Israelites had. They had some. But many times the Gentiles won the wars. They had very, very wealthy lives. And he promised through the Old Testament that when the Jews were disobedient, that he would bring the gospel to them. And this is exactly what Paul's doing right here. And that's what it means that he winked at their ignorance. That's what it means. Let me just read this verse from Paul and show you how wonderful it is that Paul was pouring his heart out because he takes the ignorance of the Gentiles and he talks about the Lord winking or being patient or being long-suffering with them. Long-suffering is like patience on steroids. <laughs> it's having real consistency with patience. Here's what Paul says, 1 Timothy 1.12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and an injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. 
Paul brings that together, and he writes that to Timothy. And we can get an idea what this means. It doesn't mean we can just sin at will and that God winks at it and he doesn't care. All right, let's finish. Um, I'd like to ask um, uh, Jacob, could you close us in prayer? Thank you.